Well, good evening. Turn, if you would, tonight to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians 15. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for the ability to be in your house tonight. I thank you, Lord, for this time that we have together in this middle of the week. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us tonight to be able to concentrate. I know that many are tired. I know that it's been a long three days already for many. I pray that you'd help us to just concentrate and to give attention to your word. I pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week, you may remember that we began looking at chapter 15. We looked at verses 1 and 2. In Paul's words uh, to the believers there in Corinth, he talked about how he was declaring unto them the gospel once more. This was something that he had given to them, of course, at a previous time, and others had given to them the gospel at previous times. We know that he said the gospel can be summarized by simply stating the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He said there in verse number 1, that they received it and wherein they also stood. And so the point was this, is that they had accepted what Paul and others had preached by way of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were unmoving in it. You were not going to convince them otherwise as it related to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He said, by which also ye are saved. It is only through the gospel that a person can be saved. We talked about then what it meant whenever he said, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, but the point of the message last week came from the last part of verse number 2, where he said, unless ye have believed in vain. And the point was this, is that as Paul writes, it appears as though he was beginning to question the authenticity of salvation in the lives of some of the believers there in Corinth. It wasn't that they didn't believe the right things. It's not that they had not accepted the right truths but it had not changed them and it had not influenced their lives in the way that the gospel ought. And so last week I tried to remind us that there is more to the gospel and there is more to salvation than you and I just saying we believe certain things. We can believe things, but if it has not changed us and if it has not transformed us, or if a person claims to be saved, if a person claims to be a recipient of the gospel, and yet nothing in their life has changed, or, or it's you know a person who is headed in a very odd or peculiar direction by way of their doctrine, by way of their theology, then you do have to question whether or not authentic salvation ever took place. It sounds so judgmental these days to even suggest such a thing, does it not? To, to even cast a doubt on a person's testimony of salvation, regardless of how they live, how dare you be judgmental? It's not a judgmental spirit. It's just taking the truth of God's word and saying this, that when a person has been saved, it ought to change their life. It's just that simple. A saved person should have a changed life, and it should be evident by that changed life. So that's what we talked about last week. Tonight we're moving on. As we do, I want to talk to a specific group of people for just a couple of moments, all right? So I know that this will not include everyone, but it will include most of us. But I think all of us will be able to understand what I'm trying to communicate. But this evening I want to talk to those of us who either have been or are currently engaged in the process of raising children. All right, either you have been or you are currently engaged in the process 
of raising children. Here is what I think most of us would like to believe, that either we did or we are doing a good job raising our children, right? Isn't that what all of us would like to believe, that if we are already done with our children, uh, we would like to think that we did a good job, and if we're still involved in the process of raising children, we would like to think that we're doing a good job. Isn't that true of us? All right, I think it would be true of most of us. And so as a result of us believing that we have or we are doing a good job in raising our children, here is what some of us would suggest to be a marker or to be an identifying aspect of being a good parent, and that would be this, laying out a system of rules and boundaries for our children to live by. I mean, it takes some rules and boundaries, does it not, for children if we're going to be good and decent parents? It's not much of a parent who does not have some rules and boundaries in place. And so for those of us who would like to believe we're doing a good job, that we did a good job with our children, then one of the things that we would say is this, that we had some rules in place, we had some boundaries in place, and those rules and those boundaries were understood by our children, and it could involve many different things, could it not? You might say something like this to one of your kids or to all of your kids. Hey, listen, you don't play with the things that are in the kitchen. You don't mess with the stove. You don't mess with the knobs. You don't mess with the buttons. You don't touch these things. You only touch these things if mom or dad tell you to touch these things. That's something you might say to your kids, right? Simple rules, simple boundary. You might say something like this. Don't throw the basketball or the football in the house especially in the living room where mama's got her lamps and her breakable vases and things of that nature, right? That would be a rule and a boundary we would have in place. Somebody says that's not being a good parent, that's just a parent with a brain. I understand, I'm just saying that that might be one of our rules, correct? We may say to our kids something like this, hey, listen, the markers go on the pages, not on the walls, we don't want you scribbling all over the walls. We don't want you writing on the walls. We don't want you doing anything of that nature. This is what we expect you to do. You color on the paper, not on the walls. Now, those are just some simple illustrations of a rule or a boundary that we might have with our kids. And as good of a parent as we might be, what is every child going to do at some point? They're going to break one of the rules or go past one of the boundaries we've set in place, right? They're going to touch something they weren't supposed to touch. They're going to throw the football in the living room when they weren't supposed to do it. They're going to decide to mark on the wall or whatever it may be. We may have established a rule and we may have established a boundary and we may be very clear on our expectations of our kids. They are aware of those expectations, but because our children are not perfect, they are going to break some of the rules sometimes. I don't care how good of a parent we are. So let me ask you if you've ever done something like this. When your child broke one of your rules, did it ever occur to you that it would be a good time in that moment to question their logic? Did you ever do anything like that? You say, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, let me explain it. I told you not to throw the football in the living room, right? Yes. Did you throw the football in the living room? Yes. What were you thinking? 
Do you ever question their logic? Okay, did, did I tell you that we color on the coloring sheets? We don't color on the walls? Yes. Okay, did you color on the walls? Yes. Why did you do that? See, it's not something that we had to really think about. It just came natural, did it not? That we were going to challenge and question their logic. If this is what you know, and if this is what you understand, if you are fully acquainted with what we expect and what is required of you, and you don't do it, I am going to question your logic on the matter. It's normal, is it not? And it's reasonable, and it's fair, and it's right. Now, how do a lot of kids respond when their logic begins to get questioned? A lot of times their eyes just get big, and they just give you this blank stare, and they just kind of shrug their shoulders. I don't know. Right? Did you throw the football? I don't know. Come on, you're the only person in here. Did you throw the football? I mean, maybe. I mean, isn't it amazing how nervous they get and how animated they get sometimes and how dramatic they get? I mean, it's just the way that children respond when their logic gets questioned. Now, I want us to think about all of that because as we move into the text tonight, let's look in verse number 3 real quick. We're going to, to move through this fairly quickly. But I want us to look in verse number 3, and he says, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Now, I know we've touched on this. I know that Brother McCracken touched on it a little over a week ago. But again, in verses 3 and 4, we have the gospel of Jesus Christ summarized. It is the declaration of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he said in verse number Number three, that he delivered it unto them, first of all, that which he had received. So Paul gave to them what he had been a recipient of. So there in verse number five, notice what it says next. It says, of Jesus Christ, the risen Savior. It says, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. So in verse number five, immediately, who does the apostle Paul cite as one of the witnesses of the resurrected Jesus Christ? It would be that of Cephas or that of Peter, correct? Now remember why this is important and keep in mind why this is significant. There were those in the church of Corinth who were devout followers of the teaching or the discipleship of Peter. You remember this? There were those who were identified as followers of Paul, some of Cephas, some of Apollos, and some of Christ. So I don't think it's an accident that as Paul is moving into this subject, into this territory that one of the first witnesses he calls to the stand in the minds of the readers would be that of Cephas, one of the men that the church had a loyalty to and an affection for. So he says of the resurrected Christ that he was seen of Cephas, and then he was seen of the twelve, a reference to the other apostles. In verse number 6, he said this, after that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. Now again, most of us understand what this means, but what Paul is saying is this. Not only was it Peter and the twelve who saw the resurrected Christ, on one occasion there were at least 500 who saw the resurrected Christ, and though some had already died, though some had already passed away, Paul said the majority of them still live and can give testimony to the resurrection of Christ. So then in verse number 7 he said, 
After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also as of one born out of due time. So he says that James saw the resurrected Christ. The apostles once more saw him. And Paul said, I too saw him, even though I am an apostle that was born out of due time. So Paul said, here are all these people, myself included, who are witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He goes on down through verses 9 and 10, and he talks about how he is the least deserving of the apostles to be called an apostle because he persecuted the church. He was basically saying if somebody did not deserve to be an apostle, it would be him because of his former lifestyle. But he said that the grace of God was not bestowed upon him in vain. He said, I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. And so what Paul said is this, is that even though I don't deserve it because of my salvation, it's not going to be in vain. And with the help of God and with the grace of God, I am going to labor and strive for the gospel more than anyone else. So in verse number 11, he said this, Therefore, whether it were I or they, whether it be myself or someone else, so we preach and so ye believed. So whether it was me, whether it was Cephas, whether it was James, whether it was one of the other apostles, regardless of who it was, here is what we have preached. We have preached the death the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he said, regardless of who it was that preached it, this would be your testimony that you believed it, that you accepted it, that you received it, that this is what you believe to be true. This is what you believe to be so. So are we following this? Here is Paul talking about the resurrection or the death, the burial, the resurrection. And he is talking about all those who witnessed the resurrected Christ. And now in verse 13, he's going to begin addressing the resurrection and all that it involves and all that it entails. But before we get there, I want us to think about something. The Apostle Paul and whoever else had influence in their lives did not stop with just the message of the death, the burial, and the resurrection. How do we know? Well, there are a couple of things that would lead us to believe this if we're going to read between the lines, okay? First of all, the Great Commission involves more than just the declaration of the gospel and seeing people saved, correct? It involves not only salvation, but it involves baptism, and it involves discipleship. The Great Commission is not fulfilled until all three aspects of that commission have been executed or implemented. Okay, so here's the Apostle Paul, and what would he have done if he had any influence in these believers' lives at all? He would not have just preached a message of salvation. He would have also, in addition to seeing their baptism take place, he would have also desired to have discipled them in the truths of God's Word. Okay, it just stands to reason that the Apostle Paul would have done more than just preach the gospel. There would have been discipleship included. So as a result of their discipleship, as a result of their growing, either through the ministry of Paul or Cephas or anyone else, they would have understood truths in addition to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have to believe that they understood something about, about eternal life about everlasting life, 
about I go to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I would have told you so. I, I want us to understand this. There was an understanding on the part of the believers that there was a home in heaven awaiting for them. Well, how do we know? Well, you remember what Paul wrote to the church and the, the believers of Thessalonica, right? I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep. See, where ignorance was present, the Apostle Paul was more than happy to explain. Kind of like you and I with our kids, right? Do we just expect our kids to know everything, and if they don't, we slap them upside the head and say, What's your problem, kid? Now, if we do act that way, then who's the jerk? We're the jerk, okay? The Apostle Paul was not a jerk. The believers in Thessalonica, they were unaware, they were uninformed, they were ignorant of some of the truths concerning the resurrection. So Paul said, listen, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, whereas others which have no hope. Listen, Paul was more than happy to explain it. But see, by the time we get to, to chapter 15 of, uh, of Corinthians, here is what we don't have. We don't have a lengthy explanation of the Apostle Paul explaining to them, now listen, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, Okay, he's not doing that. What is he doing? He is going in with the assumption and with the awareness and with the realization they already know these things. The information has been given, kind of like a rule, kind of like a boundary, kind of like the things that our kids need to know. The believers in Corinth were already aware of heaven, of eternity, of dwelling with God, things of that nature. If they were not aware of it, Paul would not have rebuked them and corrected them in the manner in which he's going to. So what is their struggle? Well, notice in verse number 12. It says, Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? What's their struggle? Well, their struggle is this. There were some among them in the church in Corinth who had come to this conclusion, who had come to, to this summary of things, that there would be no resurrection of the dead. So what does that mean? Well, that means this, that once you're done in this life, you're done. Once it's finished, it's finished. Once you're through and once you've taken your last breath, that's the end of it. That's the conclusion of it. And Paul said to them there in Corinth, he said, Now how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? What is the Apostle Paul doing? He is questioning their logic. He is questioning their reasoning. Listen, he says, whether it be myself or someone else, these are the things we preached, and this is what you believed. We've gone over this. We've explained it. We've been through this. We've laid it all out. This is what we have declared unto you, and you believed it. So how is it that there are some among you that have come to this conclusion 
that there is no resurrection from the dead. I'm going to say it again because this is important. Paul is questioning their logic. How did you come to this conclusion? It would be just like me or just like you questioning the logic of our children. What makes you think that this is okay? What made you think that this was acceptable? What makes you think that this is all right? Here is Paul and he is saying, now, now come on, I want you to answer this question. How is it that some of you are saying there is, no, there is no resurrection when I know for a fact that you gave testimony that you believed everything we taught you? How did you come to this conclusion? Now, now listen, as Paul is asking the question, you know what he expects the readers to do? He expects them to give an answer for why they've come to that conclusion. Listen, if you're going to say there's no resurrection, I want, you to, I want you to be able to give an answer as to why you think there is no resurrection. See, here's what I think happened. And, you know, I, I can only prove so much of this by, by way of assumption, maybe just by way of common sense. But, but obviously something got into their midst and got into their thinking, Right? Because they had already said, we believe what you've taught, Paul, and we believe what Cephas and others have taught. So something had to have gotten into their head that made them start saying now that there was no such thing as a resurrection. And I don't know, but if human nature was anything back then like it is today, you know what I think a lot of those people who ever espoused to this position, you know what I think they, they thought about themselves? That they were pretty sharp, clever people. Oh, yeah. We've come up with something that the Apostle Paul wasn't aware of. Oh, yeah, I've been talking to this person, and they've said some things, and it really makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I don't know that there's a resurrection like we once professed and like we once believed. Yeah, I think we've come up with something. I think we're on to something here. Can you... Can you sense maybe a, a little bit of arrogance amongst themselves that, that they are just a little bit more enlightened now as compared to some others in the church who still believe in this thing called the resurrection? Now here's what Paul is saying. If you're going to believe this, then you need to be able to answer how you came to this conclusion. See, it's not just enough, he would say to them, if, you know, using a portion of my logic, he, he would say to them something like this, you can't just stand here and give me a blank stare, guys. Come on, if you don't believe the resurrection anymore, you, you can't just stand there and stare at me. How did this come about? Because you once believed this to be so. So for you to do a 180, for you to do a complete turnabout and say you don't believe in the resurrection anymore. Hey, don't just stand there and stare at me. How, how did this happen? Okay, don't just stand there and shrug your shoulders. Oh, no. No, come on. Hey, if you're so smart now, and if you've got this insight, you don't believe in the resurrection anymore, I want to know, how is it? How is it that some of you say there is no resurrection? Listen, Paul has invested in them. He has given his, his life, a portion of it, to them. And, and he has tried to disciple them as well as others. And if they're going to start going another direction, he deserves to be able to question their logic. Why is it 
that you have now gone this direction? And how is it that you can justify this belief when you once believed this? He was allowed to question their logic. Now this evening, I want us to take this principle, though it applies specifically in the Scripture to the resurrection, I want us to think about this principle in light of, of our culture, our communities, our, our society, and the people that, that we rub shoulders with. I want to ask you something. How many of you have ever talked to someone at work and they have shared with you, they have, they have told you some of the things that they believe? Have you ever gotten into any kind of discussions with people and, and they shared with you some of the things they believed? Have you ever talked to someone and as they're telling you what they believe, they're just talking so proudly and so boldly and just so, so full of themselves as to these things they believe? And, and have you ever questioned them as to how they came to that conclusion? Because, I mean, if somebody believes something, isn't it fair for you and I to be able to question as to how they came to that conclusion? Okay, so I, I think some of you can identify with what I'm talking about. So you work with this person, and they're telling you they believe this, they believe this, and they believe this. And if you ask them, so how is it that you have come to this conclusion, and you begin to question their logic, isn't it amazing how many times they will respond to you, kind of like a child responding to a parent getting on to them? I mean, hey, if, if this is what you believe, what led you to believe this? Oh, well, uh, mm, uh, 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 I don't, well, I mean, I don't, you know, I just, well, I was thinking, you know, and I read an article and, and I was listening to somebody on the radio and it just kind of really made a lot of sense. No, no, I don't want to know what the radio personality said. I don't want to know what the article said. How did you come to this? Oh, uh, well, uh, I don't know. See, a lot of times the people you work with, they think they know what they believe and they really have no idea why they believe what it is they tell people they believe. You've probably at some point had some people in your family talk about some of the things they believe, right? And you're sitting there going, oh my goodness, I think they're crazy. They don't even know why they're saying this. That's not the way they were raised. That's not the way they were taught. I mean, how did you come to this? How did you come to this conclusion? Have you ever questioned the logic of some people in your family? If you haven't, I would encourage you to do so because they're fair game. And I don't mean that to be ugly. I'm just saying if you're having a conversation and they're going to spout off what they believe, it is totally appropriate to say, how did you come to that conclusion? Just don't be surprised when you get the blank stare and the shrug of the shoulders, so to speak. Because again, a lot of the people in your own family, they don't even know why they believe what they believe. They just believe it because it was trendy or it sounded good or, or it's kind of what's popular right now. And, and so, hey, we're going to take it and run with it. But if you were to say to them, hey, could you take me to Scripture and show me how you came to that conclusion? They'd look at you like, I don't know. It's okay to question their logic, though. Talk to a neighbor, and you visit with them, and hear some of what they believe, and you say, yeah, that, that's, that's not biblical. And the list goes on and on, right? 
So you challenge them, and, and I don't mean in, a, in an accusatory fashion. I don't mean with the wrong spirit where you say, show me. But, but what I'm saying is this. Where did you come with, how did you come to that conclusion? How, how is it that you would say that? I'm just showing us or trying to, to show us tonight that, that there are a lot of people who have no idea how they have come to these conclusions. It's just kind of what they adopted because a little bit was influenced over here and a little bit of their thinking was influenced over here and, and this person had some influence and this person had some influence and, and pretty soon you got hobo stew by way of theology and they really don't know how they acquired what it is they now believe. It's really not that uncommon in our culture today. So then let's consider it from another angle, and this should not surprise you, but let's consider it from this angle. If we're going to believe things, come on, if we're going to believe things, then what would probably be good for us? For us to be able to explain why we believe what we believe when somebody should question our logic. I mean, let, let's just think about this. The more you and I try to live according to the teachings of the Scripture, we are going to stand out more and more in our culture. So why is it that you believe that marriage is only between a man and a woman? Okay, they're going to question our logic. In that moment, you and I cannot respond like a five-year-old. Uh, well, because uh, uh, it's gross. Th th that's not the right response. It is gross, but that's not the right response. There are a lot of things in life that are gross, but they're not wrong. So if somebody were to say to us, why is it now that you in the 21st century, you haven't come around to the acceptance of the homosexual agenda of the lesbian lifestyle? Why is it that you are still so narrow-minded that marriage has to be between a man or a, between a man and a woman? You and I need to be able to say, see, the Scripture says, and start showing them some places in Scripture as to why this is the logic that we have and the conclusion we have come to. It's fair. Why don't you believe that transgenders are really people born with the wrong gender and they need to have a reassignment? I can't just say because they're crazy. That may be my immediate thought, but friends, that's not the right answer. Our God is perfect. Our God makes no mistakes. Our God is infallible, and so, you know, He, he made two genders. He made man, He made woman. And, and with God, who makes no mistakes, if, if the child was born a boy, it's a boy. If it was born a woman or a girl, it's a girl. And, 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 and we got to be able to explain it, though, from a scriptural standpoint, because even science today is not enough of an argument to explain why we believe what we believe. So somebody says to you something like this. 
Why do you believe that salvation is only through Jesus Christ? Why aren't the Muslims as good of people and going to heaven as you think you Baptists are? Why aren't these people going to heaven? Why isn't this people group going to heaven? Why are you so stuck on the idea that Jesus is the only way? Friends, we need to be able to give an answer other than that's what my church says. See, whenever you and I put our positions and our beliefs out there, it is completely fair for people to question, how is it that you would say such a thing? How is it that you would come to such a conclusion? Okay, so you believe one man, one woman. You believe that there's no such thing as this transgender movement and, and problem. And you believe that this is the only way that you can be saved. You're, you're probably against abortion too, aren't you? I, I, I am against abortion. And listen, I'm not just trying to hit the hot topics. I'm just trying to show us that these are the issues that we're wrestling with and things that were once commonly rejected are now being accepted. And you and I better have a solid reason as to why we don't accept and we do reject certain things. There has to be some logic there has to be some rationale. There has to be some answers that we give for the positions we take. I want to illustrate it. It's not really in, in manners of what I've just been discussed. It's really not anything comparable or, or close to this. But, but like right now, I'm aware of a situation where there is a believer in another church and and the church has taken a direction that the believer's not comfortable with, doesn't like, and, and isn't happy about. And they've consulted with me, and, and it's a long story. I won't give you all the details right now. It's not a church here in town. It's out of state and all this other stuff. But, but they've contacted me, and they've said, this is the decision that's been made. This is the direction we're headed, and I don't like it. Okay? Why don't we like it? Because... Well, because why? Well, it's not scriptural. Okay, now if we're going to say it's not scriptural, we need to have some evidence from scripture that what's being done now is not scriptural. So where's the scriptural evidence supporting your position and refuting their position? Well, it's a part of our bylaws. Who cares? Because bylaws can be wrong if written by flawed men in a church. So just because it's in the Constitution, just because it's in the bylaws, doesn't mean you have scriptural evidence for your position. But let's just say they're right. So what is it that the bylaws, the Constitution of the church declares? Friends, if you can't tell me what the Constitution and the bylaws declare, and you're just saying, well, it's because of the bylaws, that's not enough logic. Come on. There has to be an answer able to be given by us when our logic is questioned. Because if there is no logic and there's no rationale and there's no scripture to support our positions, then friends, our position 
is no better and no more solid than anyone else's position or beliefs or what they've determined to be true. If all we're going by is, well, this is what I was taught, then they're going by what they were taught, and friends, we have no authority. So when we come to a position, when we come to a conclusion, and someone were to say to us, how say you, and how is it that you have come to this position? We need to be able to give an answer. I'm sure you are aware of this. But let me just remind us of what this means. It means this, we have to be thinkers. And that's not always what independent Baptists are known for. A lot of times we just like to yell. A lot of times we just like to make bold statements. You can get mad at me if you want. I'm just being honest with this. A lot of times we don't lack the boldness and the confidence. We just back the biblical authority. We lack the biblical authority to back what it is we're declaring. We've got to be thinkers. We have got to be able to answer how we have come to this conclusion because we cannot stand there, give a blank stare and a shrug of the shoulders, and you and I getting defensive and hateful doesn't prove a thing. Just because we can yell back and just because we can raise our voices and just because we can call them crazy and just because we can insult them, that doesn't prove a thing. In fact, really the only thing that it has proven is that we really have no idea why we believe what we believe. So I would say it like this. If we don't know why we believe what we believe, then probably when that subject of conversation comes up, we probably ought to keep our mouth shut. Because if we're not ready to back up what it is we say we believe, we're not going to stand a chance when our logic and when our rationale is questioned by someone who wants to refute what we say we believe. You've got the believers in Corinth. This is what I believe. Okay, well, we've had a change of heart now in what we believe. Okay, what changed? Because that is not what you were taught. That is not what you were given by way of doctrine. This is not what was presented to you. And this is not what you once believed. Okay, I'm, I'm going to question your logic. And I'm going to take you to task on this. I want to know what happened. What changed? What's different? Why are you now this position when you were once of that position? I want to know. I'm just saying what we believe is fair game for anyone to question. It is fair game. And we better be able to give an answer, or we probably ought to stay quiet. And if somebody questions us because we were not smart enough or wise enough to keep our mouths shut, we cannot get angry and upset that we're now the ones who look foolish. We've got to be students, we've got to be thinkers, and we've got to be people who know why we believe 
what we believe, especially in this godless society that will question everything we stand for. How is it that you believe this? What is the basis for the positions you take? What, are the, what is the basis for the positions we take at this church? We must know where our authority lies and where we get our answers. Let's all stand tonight and bow our heads for prayer. Fathers, we come to you this evening. I pray that you would help us to be men and women who are students of your word. God, I pray that you'd help us to be men and women who understand that any time, any place, anywhere that we began to speak of our beliefs, of our doctrine, of what we hold to, I pray that you'd help us to understand that we are subject now to be questioned by anyone and we need an answer. And God, I pray that if nothing else, you would give us the wisdom to know when to speak and when to remain silent when we have the authority of your word and when we just have the authority of opinion and, and man's ideas. I pray that you'd help us to be wise in, in how we handle ourselves. I pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.